Let's pray together. God, we come to you in prayer because we are desperate people. And we often think that we are self-sufficient because we have direct deposit and we have a car and we have a roof over our heads, but we are poor, wretched, blind, spiritually impoverished and in need of your grace. And so we pray because apart from your power, we are helpless in ourselves. And we appeal to you because you are a God of great mercy. You love to pour out your generosity liberally. And you are gracious and kind and caring, and we praise you for that. And Lord, I ask this morning uh, an echo of Isaiah chapter 54, that you would give me the tongue of one who is taught so that I might be able to sustain with a word those who are weary. We give you thanks for your son Jesus who stepped into this world in order to redeem us and rescue us. And I pray that our hearts would be moved to joy and delight this morning as we think about all that he has done for us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this morning we are beginning our Christmas series, our Advent leading up to Christmas Day, and we do this almost every year. Um, We kind of take the month of December to think a little bit about what it means that our God became incarnate and entered into our world, being born of the Virgin Mary. And of course, the Christian faith, I would say, centers probably most fundamentally around the death and resurrection of Jesus because in that work he paid the penalty for our sin and he conquered death on our behalf. Praise God for that. But the fact is of equal wonder and equal uh, power and amazement is not merely the resurrection of Jesus Christ but the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And if you're not familiar with that word, incarnation, it's a word that refers to this incredible truth that our eternal, all-wise creator God of all the universe, maker of humanity and all things in this world, he humbled himself and he took on flesh and he became a man like you, a person like me. And this is the significance of Christmas. This is what we celebrate, that in love, our God, who made us, stepped into this ruined creation that we tarnished with our sin and rebellion, and God took upon his infinite, eternal, glorious nature the frail and limited human experience that you and I know so well. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about how wonderful this truth is. We're just going to let our hearts be filled with awe and adoration for our God who would be born into this world as our Savior. Today, we're going to talk about the humanity of Jesus, that our Savior is truly human. Next week, we're going to talk about the deity of Jesus, that our Savior Christ is truly God. The third week, we're going to reflect on Christ becoming our sacrifice for sin, And then the fourth week, we'll consider the truth that Jesus is our king, and we'll wrap it all up on Christmas Eve, talking about the glory of Jesus. And I'm excited to spend the next month just fixing our eyes on Christ together. 
So our text for today, hopefully you're there in your Bible, is John chapter 11, verse 35. And I can help you memorize it real quick. If you've not memorized any scripture, you got one today. It's very simple. John eleven thirty-five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. I would imagine that before you leave here, you could have that verse memorized. And if you've got no other verses, you got one, okay? Jesus wept. That's it. That's the text. Jesus wept. Now, you might be thinking, Grady, it's only two words. Like, can there really be that much to say about two words? Jesus wept. But these words reveal some incredibly profound truths about this man, Jesus, about our God, as he took upon himself in all of his divinity the frailness of humanity. This verse is an amazing statement about the fact that Jesus was truly and fully human like us. So just to give you a little bit wider picture of what's going on here, because context matters, in John chapter 11, we see Jesus... Uh, in sadness and sorrow over the death of his friend Lazarus, who recently died and was buried. If you were here with us last week, this is not the same Lazarus from the parable. Different guy, even though they have the same name. And Jesus has come to the tomb of his friend Lazarus in order to comfort Lazarus's family and Lazarus's friends. But also as the scene unfolds, we see that Jesus has come here to the tomb in order that he might do something incredible, in order that he might actually raise this man up from death back to life, which Jesus does. He calls out to the man in the tomb and tells him, commands him to come forth, and Lazarus, who was dead, lives again. But before that joyful moment, we get John eleven thirty five, 35, where we are told Jesus wept. As Jesus looks at the grim reality of death, his heart is full of grief. Now again, you might be thinking, man, Grady, you know, what's the big deal? Jesus is sad. He sheds tears. People die, and that's sad. And this is what people do when people die. They grieve, and they shed tears. So what? Everyone who's human grieves at some point in life and sheds tears. Why is it significant here that Jesus weeps? Well, in order for us to really understand what's going on here, we have to take a dive deep into kind of a mysterious exploration of the nature of God. And let me warn you, this is heavy stuff, okay? Uh, if you came to church this morning just looking for some light, fluffy teaching, I'm about to open up for you some very deep theology, penetrating theology. It's going to require the full engagement of your mind and your heart as we talk about this. So stick with me this morning. Okay? See, what's so astounding about the fact that Jesus weeps is that Jesus is God and God does not weep. God does not weep. Because to weep is to suffer and God does not suffer. But although Jesus is fully God, he is truly also fully man. 
And so the Bible records for us this scene where Jesus weeps over the pain and the sadness of death because it really brings great grief to his heart. Now, in theological terms, if you're the kind of person who cares to know, what we are talking about here is what's called the impassibility of God. God does not feel passion. God is impassable. That's not to say that God does not feel things. God does, in fact, feel things. In a sense, you can say God experiences emotions. The Bible records God's emotions for us in many pages of Scripture. But God's experience of what we might call feelings is something totally different than what you and I experience. And I don't have time to go into all of that this morning. My point here is not that God does not feel passion. That's not what I'm saying. By using this word passion, I'm referring to an older definition of this word. When we say God is impassable, he does not feel passion. Passion, in its original sense, means suffering. Suffering. God does not experience suffering. So maybe you've seen the movie, The Passion of Christ. That movie is about the suffering that Jesus experienced in the cross. Take a look at this definition of the word passion for me, and I hope that it will help kind of clear things up. Do we have that? There we go. Passion means to be affected in such a way that one is now harmed or deprived of one's well-being, or to be affected in such a way that after lacking fulfillment, one is now fulfilled. Now, you might be looking at that going, I'm not sure that helps anything, Grady. (laughs) Another way to say it is like this. And maybe you've said something like this to somebody. I was okay, but now I am not okay. Or I am okay, but before I was not okay. To be affected in this way is to move from one state of being where you felt bad but now you feel good, or the opposite, where you felt good, but now you feel bad. You and I make movements like this probably every single day as our emotions swing back and forth from one state where we feel good to another where we don't. But God cannot and does not experience feelings or sufferings or passions In this way, to be harmed or to be deprived of his well-being or to suffer lack, these are all things that God cannot do because God is totally and completely satisfied in himself. He lacks nothing. He cannot be harmed. He never has been nor will he ever be deprived or diminished in his being in any sense. Psalm 1611 tells us that in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And guess who is always in God's presence? God. And so God is always experiencing fullness of joy, completely satisfied. So to say that God does not weep is to say that God does not feel pain. God does not suffer. Nothing can damage God or harm him. God has never had a moment, my friends, where he has felt sad 
or depressed or anxious or overwhelmed or full of grief or sorrow because his being is not in any way affected by anything that is outside of him. It is completely sufficient in himself. Our God is the incorruptible God who dwells in unapproachable light. All goodness is contained inside of himself. He is always in himself completely content. God is above all passions. He cannot move from sadness to joy or joy to sadness. He is the unchanging God. In him, there is no variation or shadow due to change. And this is an incredible truth about God. Praise God for this truth. As I was pondering this idea, preparing my sermon this week, I felt just a great wave of peace come over me at one moment. This joyful relief concerning this truth. What an anchor for the soul this is for you and for I. That our God does not suffer over this world so deep in misery and evil. And maybe, maybe I can illustrate it for you. See, I, as your pastor, I actually do suffer with you. In some small way, when you suffer, I feel that. When you're hurting or your heart is heavy and you share that with me, it is inevitable that to some degree, your misery will become my misery. I will feel that. Because I love you, because I care about you, because you are important to me. This is not uh, an overstatement. There are some times where in praying for you, in praying for our church, I'm just curled up in the fetal position on my bed at home, just overwhelmed by all the things that Will mentioned. You have shared with me in confidence some things that you need counsel for or prayer for or maybe just um, an empathetic heart. And those things are a burden, a heavy burden to consider the needs of our church. Broken relationships, financial stress, depression, loneliness, addiction, heartache, wayward children, ruined marriages, unemployment, sickness, death, pain, sin, those are weighty, burdensome things. And you share them with me. And the truth is, I can't help but share some of the weight of that. And these things affect me. They make me feel worried and anxious, sometimes sick and sad. And in some sense, I carry a little bit of a weight of that for all of the 200 people that are connected to our church. And sometimes it's just a crushing weight on my soul. It's too much heartache for me to carry. When you suffer, I suffer. And I would imagine you know what I'm talking about because I know you have interconnected relationships with one another and you love one another. And sometimes these things are shared not just with me, but with others in our church. And I would imagine that to some degree, you know what I'm talking about when someone shares their suffering with you your heart responds to that. Now imagine God who knows all things and loves all people. They're all precious to him and he has made them in his image. 
And from heaven, he sees all the actions of man and knows all the grief of every human heart and feels the weight, knows the weight of all of the burdens of our sin and misery. And he sees the sadness and evil and pain and it is all laid out before him, exposed. And if God could suffer, then the suffering of all of humanity would surely crush him. If God could suffer, then the burden of our pain would be his pain. And you might be able to just imagine what that would be like. All of the pain of humanity. We might imagine God himself curled up in the fetal position on the floor in just grief and sorrow. So isn't it great to know that God can see all of the heartache of mankind and care for it and love it and be concerned with it, but none of it corrupts his joy. He remains joyful in the midst of that. He cares with infinite love, but he is not brought to the brink of despair by all of the burdens of our sorrows. He is the incorruptible God. He can look on our heartache with love and tenderness, but the sorrow and the pain of human suffering that we endure does not paralyze God with anxious worry or overwhelming grief. Now you might say to me, but Grady, this is not a comfort to me. Why would you think this would be a comfort, Grady? Because isn't God, when I cry out to him in prayer, isn't he supposed to be moved? Isn't he supposed to respond to my suffering? with compassion and tenderness? And actually, the answer to that is no. It's no. Because God cannot be moved. And when I say that, at first you might think, well, that sounds really cruel and uncaring. What kind of God is this who doesn't, isn't moved to compassion by our suffering? But that's because we haven't failed or we haven't we have failed to understand rightly. It actually makes perfect sense. Let me try and explain it to you. See, if you come to me with your heartache and you express it to me and you say I have grief over this thing and I tell you your grief moves my heart. Do you know what that means about how I felt before you expressed it to me? I didn't care. But this is not the case with God. God does not need to be stimulated before he cares. God does not need to be moved before he loves you. God does not need the information concerning your situation before his heart is connected to yours in love. His love and his concern was always already activated and for you and towards you in all of its fullness. He has always cared. He has never not cared. His love and his care are so great that they actually existed for you before the foundations of the very earth. Before your suffering happened, God's love was there. And God remains unchanged because before your heart ever hurt, his heart was already for you with compassion. See, we are changed 
when we see the suffering of another and we respond to it. But God has always cared. Before the pain ever began, God has loved us with an everlasting love, is what Isaiah tells us. Firm and established even before the beginning of time. Measureless and without end. That love has always and will always flow to you without any change. It's never increased. It's never decreased. It's always been absolute and complete. Now then, hopefully, we can better appreciate John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. What it tells us is that Jesus became so entirely like us, taking humanity upon himself without ever shedding his divinity, that he added to his impassable nature passability. He became able to suffer. Although Jesus is God, and as God, he never experiences any suffering because Jesus chose to become man like you and me. He chose to take upon himself your suffering and my suffering. In other words, although Jesus remained fully God, he also became fully man and truly entered into this experience of life. So in Jesus, the unchangeable nature of God unites with the weak and vulnerable nature of man. And so someone tell me, what God is like our God who would do such a thing? Perfect in joy and happiness and willing to take upon himself all of the grief and sorrow and sadness of what it means to be human. So here in this verse, I think we have a starting point to talk about four things we learn about, the four things we begin to learn about our God, Jesus, who became fully man. And I hope this will be a comfort to us, okay? I'll try and go through these quickly. First, Jesus knows your sadness. Jesus knows your sadness. Have you ever been so sad so grieved that you wondered if anyone else on earth could even understand this pain that you're going through. Like, if you were to sit down and ex- describe it to them, would they even get it? When John 11.35 tells us that Jesus wept, it helps us see that Jesus knows our sadness, not just as this idea outside of himself, but as a suffering within himself that moved him to tears. Jesus, as truly man, felt the sadness of those who had lost their friend, Lazarus. And we're comforted by this truth. Because sometimes in grief, we feel so terribly overwhelmed, we don't even know how to express it. There are no words. Who could understand our suffering? Well, Jesus. Jesus, the weeping God. Jesus, the weeping man. He understands this sadness, and we can bring it to him for comfort. We also find in this verse, Jesus knows our frailty. Humans are weak and frail. Don't you feel that in your bones almost every day? Like you can handle a piece of paper wrong, and you start to bleed. You break your bones. They ache as you get old. You go to sleep, and you wake up in the morning, and you feel like somebody beat you up through the night. We are frail. 
And we experience that frailty not merely in our bodies, but in our psyches as well as we encounter conflict and hardship and we feel anxious and overwhelmed and distraught. We are so frail that we have to eat food every day and drink water every day or we die. And eventually, you know what? No matter what you do, you are so frail that eventually you will expire. All of your efforts to avoid it will come to naught. And so Jesus stands at the tomb of Lazarus here and he weeps because human life, because of sin, always ends in death. Because we're frail. Even the life of the God-man Jesus would end in death and resurrection, praise God. But our immortal, eternal, everlasting God, the beginning and the end, chose for himself to take upon his limitless, eternal, divine nature your frailty as a true human. And so God knows what a weak and helpless creature you are because he's shared in that weakness. He became a baby utterly dependent upon his mother just to make it through one single day. And so you can bring your weakness to him and he will share his strength with you. When we are weak, scripture tells us he is strong and he lends us his strength so we might endure. Jesus also knows our loneliness and so he weeps. Surely in shedding these tears, part of what moved Jesus was the grief of Lazarus's sisters who now felt lonely because their brother was lost to them. They're cut off, alone, no longer connected to their beloved brother. And Jesus stands there at the tomb, not merely in grief because there is a chasm of death between him and Lazarus, but also because Jesus knows what it's like to lose a friend and feel lonely. One of the strangest things about being a human is the experience of loneliness. Have you ever been in a room full of people and felt lonely? Maybe you're here this morning and there's like more than 100 people in this room. You're not alone, but you are lonely. Jesus knows that loneliness. He chose to enter into it. In fact, on the cross, he cried out in agony, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to those who are in this room and you're lonely this morning, think about this. Jesus, who for all eternity passed in perfect fellowship with God the Father, in a loving, fulfilling, satisfying relationship, not ever lonely or alone, for all eternity immeasurable, that God in Jesus chose to become a man like you, to take upon his divine nature your human experience of loneliness. So that then when we cry out to God in anguish because our souls are isolated and alone, what we find is Christ is there. And he knows. He knows. And so he draws close to us. And so if you're lonely this morning, then go to the God who is both eternally satisfied 
and also the God who knows your feelings of being forsaken. He is ready to console you. We also begin to understand here from the weeping of Jesus that God knows our brokenness. Another thing that is striking to me about the human experience is if, if you ask just about anybody, do you think anything's wrong with the world? I have yet to meet a person who says, no, I think everything's just perfect. The world is broken. And again, we know it. We feel it. And here we see at the tomb of Lazarus proof that death is unnatural. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. Suffering is ugly and wrong. Pain is not okay. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. And so Jesus sees it and he weeps over it. And yet again, I must point out that Jesus knew full well as God in heaven when he stepped into our world to take humanity upon himself that in doing so he would be subject to this brokenness himself. And that was a hardship that Jesus knew full well and was willing to embrace for your sake. He chose the difficult path because love compelled him. He chose to lay aside his riches and embrace poverty for you, that you might be rich. So our God knows brokenness, not as something that from heaven he has observed outside and seen on earth, but as something that he entered into in life. So Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I don't know about you, but I find there is, in fact, great comfort in the truth that Jesus knows what it's like to experience all of these things. When we cry out to our God in suffering, he has compassion on us, not only because he is the God who is kind and merciful, but because he's actually able to sympathize with us. But here's what I want you to see as I move to close here, okay? There's a far more wonderful thing to think about beyond simply the fact that Jesus can sympathize with you. If we ask the question, why did Jesus become like us, taking upon his divine nature a second fully human nature? Why did Jesus do this? It is not sufficient for us to answer by saying, so that he could sympathize with us. No. See, tragically today, when people are suffering, they want someone to step into that suffering with them, don't they? They want somebody to feel the feels that they are feeling with them. And there's some value in that. But if you listen closely, you know what I've begun to hear from time to time from people in their suffering? They're basically saying to me, I am without hope. And so if you would come to me, you too must abandon all hope and enter where I am to suffer, to become hopeless with them. But do you know what that kind of sympathy does? 
It leaves them in their hopelessness and despair and their ruin and their misery. If I leave my confidence in God to sympathize with you and enter into your suffering, what help can I possibly be to you? I have nothing then to offer you. If I too become hopeless to feel your hopelessness, how can I be a blessing to you? See, Jesus didn't have the tomb of Lazarus opened so that he could crawl into the tomb and lay down next to Lazarus and die beside him. After Jesus wept, he commanded that the tomb would be opened so that he might call this man out of the misery of death and back into life. That he might, by doing so, then alleviate, alleviate the suffering of those who were grieved over death. He did not abandon his confidence in God in order that he might sympathize with people, but he entered into your pain, my friends, in order that he might lead you out of it and be victorious over it. And friends, this is one of the mysteries of the incarnation, the mysteries of the truth that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Being truly man, he stepped into our suffering and really experienced it and really embraced it and really wept over it. And then being truly God, he lifted us out of it that we might put it behind us because Jesus was still, even as man, fully the impassable God incapable of suffering, unable to experience that pain. And so he could take then the whole of human suffering and he could bind it all up in his unchanging joy as God. As Samwise Gamgee, the hobbit, once said, is everything sad becoming untrue? Yes, everything sad is becoming untrue because our sympathetic Jesus remained our triumphant God. And so Jesus experienced human suffering and then he took it all and he swallowed it all up in his divine nature so that you and I might be saved out of our despair and misery and sadness and be given instead of that joy and life and happiness and contentment. See, Jesus is our Savior. He's our Savior, which in part means he doesn't just empathize or sympathize with us. No, he rescues us out of our broken, wretched, tragic world. He entered into it so he might lead us out of it. And right now, right now, Jesus, this man, remains fully man, even as he is fully God, seated at the right hand of God the Father, but in his glorified state now, as true human, he suffers no more. Will, your prayer was so right on, your word of encouragement. See, in heaven, Jesus remembers the suffering of his days on earth. He does not forget them. He remembers what it is like to be frail and weak like you. But in his glorified body now as true man, he has cast off his human passion. 
Those robes of suffering no longer clothe him. The frailty, the sadness, the loneliness, the brokenness of human suffering, those belong to Jesus no more. Because now he wears only again the impassable nature of God. Unable to suffer, immune to sorrow and heartache, being utterly filled and joyful with peace and contentment in the presence of God the Father. And this is the future that is prepared for you in the life to come. For you who believe and remain steadfast to the end, one day you too will cast off the passable nature of your suffering human experience and you will be like Christ. Yes, while we live in this life ahead of us, there will yet be days of weeping and sorrow. Some of you, as hard as you may have cried in the past, in the future, you will shed even greater tears. That's true. But we set our hope on the future that Christ has prepared for us, where after entering our world as true man, Christ suffered and died and rose again, and then he ascended to heaven ahead of us in order to lead the way, so that when we too die, we will step into his glory. And we will cast off the robes of our frail human nature, our suffering and our sorrow, And we will be forever comforted, forever at peace, no longer vulnerable to the pain that we've experienced in this life. And on that day, we're told, our weeping will turn to laughter. Our mourning will turn to rejoicing. Our sorrow will turn to joy. So be of good cheer, my friends. Really, be of good cheer. Yes, in this life we will have trouble, Jesus warned us, but Christ has overcome our suffering. And he has prepared for us an eternal place where our human ruin will be overcome by his glorious grace. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you that you are the impassable God. And yes, in our suffering, we certainly want someone to come to us and mourn with us. We think of Job and his friends who sat in sorrow and silence for seven days to just be present with their friend. And we thank you that you are a God like that who stepped into our suffering for 33 years in order that you might identify with us. But, oh God, we thank you that you are not the God who left us in that despair, but who has led us out of it. We thank you that though we may abandon all hope in you at moments of doubt and trial, that you, Jesus, have never abandoned your hope in God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would come and minister to those of us in this room who need this gospel message today that we trust a God who is invulnerable to suffering and yet who became a man to identify with us and yet remains God, untouchable by all pain and sorrow and sadness and suffering. And Lord, I pray that you would lift those in this room who need that ministry this morning up out of that sorrow and hopelessness 
and into joy and peace and hope. I ask this in Christ's precious name, amen.